to Luke 21, starting from verse 5 and on to verse 24. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, for the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be for in, in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let me pray as Phil comes up to share the word of God with us. Father God, we thank you for Phil. We thank you for the time that he has taken to ponder these things in prayer to you. Uh, Please help him as he shares what he's prepared. Please speak through him powerfully. And in our own hearts, would you prepare us, make us supple and ready to understand what you have to teach us and to apply it to our lives. We ask a special blessing on Phil now as he brings your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. If you could have your Bible open um, at that passage, we're going to look at it today. It's, it's quite a tricky passage, let me just say that from the outset. And one of the reasons is it's hard to work out what Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about the temple? Or is he talking about the end times before he returns? It's also tricky because often we can take a passage like this, pull it out of context, and too quickly apply it 
to our circumstances today. So let's go back a little bit. The context is Jesus is talking to his disciples about situations they were going to face after his ascension. In fact, when you look at this carefully, when you look at the history of the first 40 years of the church, most of what Jesus prophesies in this passage comes true within the time span of those first 40 years. Certainly, it's all true and fulfilled by the time the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. And yet, at the same time, there's also a big correlation between what the disciples were going through and what Christians have to, have had to endure over the last 2,000 years. So in the same way that Jesus talks about the last days for his disciples, there is a sense in which we can relate to those last days as we wait for Jesus' return. So Jesus is teaching his disciples about the physical last days of the temples. And his language is what's known as apocalyptic, end times language. But when you look at it carefully, actually all of this comes true in the next 40 years. But at the same time, all that he says still applies to us in our time because we are waiting for the great end time when Jesus returns. You see, like the early church, many Christians today are persecuted. And like the early church, the world today is in chaos and turmoil because that's what happens when sinful people like us are given power. And yet at the same time, like in the early church, this is the promise. Jesus is with his people and gives them strength in most difficult times. Let me just illustrate that with an extract from a book called Killing Fields, Living Fields. You might have heard it before, but the setting is Cambodia in the 1970s during the terror of the Khmer Rouge dictatorship. In the book, we're told the account of what happened to to a Christian man called Haim and his family. It goes like this. Haim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon. They were called the old dandruff, bad blood, enemies of the glorious revolution, CIA agents. They were Christians. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath the stand of trees. Next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them to their place of execution, nicknamed the Killing Fields. Curious villagers lingered nearby, half-hidden, watching the familiar routine as the family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then Haim was given a moment to to prepare the family for death. So he gathered them together, and holding each other's hands, they knelt around the grave. With loud cries to God, Haim began to exhort uh, both the Khmer Rouge and all those looking on to repent and believe in Jesus. It's just one example of thousands that show the point of this passage. Believers will be persecuted by unbelievers. The family, Haim's family, faced death for their faith. And in the present time, 
Actually, it was only last May that our Home Secretary told our Parliament how Christian persecution has reached genocidal proportions worldwide. And yet he didn't tell the whole picture. Because the bigger point of this passage is that in the midst of persecution, Jesus' kingdom is growing and Jesus is giving his people strength and courage. And we have to have that bigger picture in mind. And Jesus encourages us to have that bigger picture in mind by helping us see three things. And the first is, see the kingdom of God for what it is. See the kingdom of God for what it is. So as we saw last week, the previous chapter of Luke is a quick-fire round of, of questions and interrogations from the chief priests and teachers of the law. They're trying to catch Jesus out. And then just at the end of that inquisition comes this beautiful picture of a woman who is just giving two copper coins to God, everything she had out of love and and devotion to her God. And Jesus points her out and says, there is the kingdom of God. That's what it's like. It's about knowing God personally and receiving his love and living in that love. It's about accepting his sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be in relationship with him. It's expressing our love in return by giving everything we have, everything we consider precious. That belongs to God. She, the seemingly insignificant person there, teaches more about the kingdom of God than all the chief priests and teachers of the law could have managed in a year of sermons. It's a beautiful picture. And then we come to verse 5. Let me read it for you. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. The the massive contrast, isn't there? It reminds me um, of a few years ago, many years ago now, when the boys were really little. Um, Liz and I had had just got dressed up to go out. Liz had a beautiful dress on. And we were going to go for dinner. First time in absolute months. The babysitter had arrived. The boys were in their pyjamas about to go uh, to bed and they were doing the rounds of kissing us goodnight. But suddenly, as one of the boys was sat on Liz's lap, he started to throw up. And it wasn't just once, it just kind of kept on until his whole stomach was emptied all over Liz's front and down onto her lap. It was, it was by far and away one of the most awful things ever. And needless to say, the evening was cancelled. The babysitter had to go home. And Liz, bless her, just picked up her dress and went fully dressed to the shower, just to shower down. And verse 5 is like that incident. It's like a bowl of vomit poured over Jesus' beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus has just taught his disciples about the kingdom built on love, not law, under the, or under the burden of God's approval. He pointed about God's beautiful picture of what that kingdom looks like. And the disciples turn around and go, oh, this is a great place, isn't it? Oh, the architecture, oh, the crowd, just just the, oh, it's just amazing, isn't it? It's a crass moment. It's a jarring moment. And we have to ask, what is it that Luke is wanting us to see? And to find the answer, we go to the next verse. But Jesus said, 
as for what you see here, everything you find precious, everything you adore, everything you think is amazing, oh, all of it. Let me tell you one thing, boys. The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. See, Jesus makes this point in response to his disciples' blindness. His kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. They're created by power and might, by exploitation, by murder, by exhortation, uh, by, by extortion, rather. Just like that kingdom, oh, it's still under construction. Forty years they'd spent building it. It was bigger than, than, than the Parthenon in Athens, one of the seven great wonders of the world. Jesus says it's entirely man-made awfulness that has created this. And it's going to fade away. And the point is an important one to follow. Because Luke wants to show us how easy it is to get sucked into looking at the wrong thing. I know a number of Christians who have been at one time or another obsessed with success. Their hearts have craved the big job, the fast car, the bigger house. Others have been pulled into the idolatry of the next big experience or personal comfort. Sadly, many don't realize they've been overtaken by those idolatries. And they find their Christian walk is stunted by it. But for those who do realize, they'll all say it's too easy to get sucked into that desire. It's too easy. How do you know that's, that's you? How do you know that's me? Well, one sign is that God's kingdom just doesn't seem to float our boats anymore. And our prayer times, our quiet times are dry because actually Jesus is no longer the center of our hearts. Our minds wander after the things that we really want. Another sign is when our church experience, basically we we get frustrated with it because we want a better experience than it is. We want it to serve us better, to speak to us more, to be more than it is. In other words, the big sign is when we treat God's kingdom and God's kingdom people like they serve us like the temporary things we long for. It's a heart attitude. It's, it's difficult to quantify for all of us generally, but personally we have to look out for it. And Luke wants us to see Jesus' kingdom for what it is. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's made up of people not places. This is God's kingdom here. The people sat on these chairs, not the building, not the chairs themselves. It's it's the people. There's the heart of God's kingdom. And whereas glitzy temples and fast cars and reputations will pass away, Jesus' kingdom will not stop growing and drawing people to it. And that's the point that Jesus wants us to see. See God's kingdom for what it is, not wanting it to be what it isn't. Secondly, 
Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Look at verse 7 to 11 with me. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So the disciples, you know, pull the handbrake on and, and, they, and they, they, they spot the, the prophetic angle of what Jesus is saying. And by using that phrase, these things, Luke is hinting that they're aware that Jesus is not just making a short-term prediction like the weather forecast, but that he's talking about the future and what will happen to his disciples years from now. So Jesus replies in verse 8, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming that I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be afraid. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, they're worrying verses, but it's important to realize that they were meant to anchor the disciples, not scare them. Jesus tells them to be both not deceived and not frightened, because whereas people who belong to the world around them will have no anchor in the storm, when these things come about, there will be nothing for them to cling on to, because everything they cling on to will be slowly destroyed. His disciples will have an anchor. His disciples will have a place in the heart of God. Whereas the world around them will see literally everything they value crumble. Those who belong to Jesus' kingdom will endure in that chaos. And at the same time as this prophecy being for the disciples, there's a sense in which their circumstances resonate with our circumstances. In other words, as we wait for Jesus' return, Jesus' warnings and encouragements apply to us too in our times. So we're not to be deceived. That's Jesus' big thing here. Don't be deceived. So for us today, it's important to know our doctrine and our Bibles well. And it's important for us to be aware that there are a lot of false teachers around, particularly online. And, and relatively, Christians today, we, we don't know our Bibles well. And we don't know how to handle them well. We're also less inclined to study theology and ground our faith in faithful doctrine. And the consequence is, we're less confident of what we believe, and we are more easily deceived. So how do you know you're listening to a false teacher? Well, here, let me just give you three quick things to listen out for. They're not foolproof by any means, but they're just a starter for 10 as you begin to listen and filter and be discerning about what you hear. Firstly, listen not just to what they do say, but what they don't say. For example, I was at a funeral a few years ago when a minister read John 3.16 like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we might not perish but have eternal life. It sounds right, it sounds fine, she's, but she skipped over the point that salvation is for whoever believes in him. In other words, she, the technical term is she, she's, she's universalist, which means everybody come what may ends up in heaven, however, however that happens. Um, and what she's done is she's taken her theological framework and taken out of that verse the bits that she doesn't like, whoever believes in him. So it's not just what she says, it's what 
That implies she doesn't say, what she doesn't say implies actually her, her theology. Secondly, as you, ask yourself, who is in authority when the speaker speaks? Who's in authority when the speaker speaks? You see, the false teacher will put themselves above the authority of the Bible. How, how does that happen? Well, the false teacher will tend to use the Bible selectively to support their teaching. So a warning sign of this is if the Bible is, is not opened or is vaguely referenced without context. So no matter how good it sounds, or how matter, however much you like to listen to them, what they're doing is just using the Bible to back up what they think and say. On the other hand, a faithful teacher of God's word will submit to God's word. It will be read out loud. It will be explained faithfully with context. And then applied. It's a much harder method. But when that happens, we hear God speaking rather than the the, the teacher. And in that way, there's accountability. We've all got our Bibles open. We're all saying, is what this person is saying actually right in the context of the Bible? What I'm reading, is it the same thing? That's why we encourage each of us, each each of us, when we, we meet together, to have the Bible open. So we hold the speaker to account. And, and there's security. Because the speaker is under God's word too. Jesus warns his disciples not to be deceived by false teachers. The temple was going to be destroyed. But they would stand firm by working hard to spot the deceivers and resisting them. The third thing Jesus tells his disciples in this passage is to expect persecution. Expect persecution. Look at verse 12 to 18 with me. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and, and all on account of my name, all because of Jesus. And so you will bear testimony to me. Then verse 16 You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. As you read through the story of the early church in Acts, what you see is exactly what Jesus says in these verses. James gets beheaded soon after Pentecost. Peter and John are imprisoned and flogged. They all get scattered throughout the region of Judea because of persecution. Peter himself it nearly suckers for, 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 for false teaching, for, for deceivers. It takes Paul the apostle to come and sit the disciples down and they have a big barney, a theological debate about what is right and what is wrong teaching about the gospel. Even Peter is suckered, uh, even Peter suckers for the deceivers. And Paul puts him right. John is eventually exiled to a remote island. And the church tradition tells us that Peter and Andrew were crucified. But right through the book of Acts, as the persecution happens, we get the repeated phrase, and more were added to their number. People were constantly being saved. The church never stopped growing. 
And this is the balance we're to hold in these verses. They describe the persecution. They describe the difficult times that the church was always going to go through. But Jesus was going to be, Jesus will be with his disciples all the way, giving them words to preach, teach, uh, teach, uh, 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 encouraging them in difficult times, filling them with the Holy Spirit to spread the good news. And so just as we saw in verse 5 to 11, we also see in these verses that in our world today, the church is also suffering persecution, but will also be carefully supported and loved and cared for by our Savior. So if you go on the Open Doors website that encourages us to pray for the persecuted church, you'll find that Christians are in fear of their lives all over the world. And let's not forget the everyday experience of low-level opposition we face. Most of us here have been ostracized at work for what we believe, or have family members who are suspicious of Christianity. How do we respond? Well, Jesus' words here are such great comfort, aren't they? Verse 14, Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And then verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When we're persecuted, when non-Christians take the mick out of Jesus, when the school friends slander you because you're a Christian, take heart. Really do. Because they're not hating you per se. Your persecutors are ranting at the kingdom of God advancing before them. They're hating Jesus because they know his kingdom is advancing. And as his kingdom advances, he demands lordship. He can't say, oh, you carry on your life under the way that you live it and and under your own lordship and come into my kingdom. That's not the way Jesus works. He is the king. And so when we enter into his kingdom, we actually declare him as lord, him as king, him as judge and ruler of our lives, and we submit to it. And like that wonderful woman at the very, very, very beginning of this chapter... He's kind of saying, it's, it's not a bad thing, guys. Elsewhere in John, he says, my, 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 yoke, is bur- my, my, my yoke is light. My, my burden is light. My, my yoke is easy. He's saying, accept my Lord, take my lordship. It's not a big burden, but it has to be absolute. You can't live for yourself and him. That's why people rant and rage and hate Jesus because he demands lordship over our lives, lordship that we have. And do you know Jesus says even in the midst of persecution, if the worst happens, he will win us eternal life. The story I began with illustrates that. It finishes in a dramatic way. Let me read the rest of it, just to remind you, Chaim and his family had been rounded up, told to dig their graves. And Chaim 
knelt down with his family to pray. The story continues. In panic, one of Haim's younger sons leapt to his feet and ran into the surrounding scrub and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to go and call the boy back. The onlookers peering round the trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Haim began calling for his son, pleading with him to return and die with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in that wilderness as a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here, momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, forever free in paradise. What comparison, my son. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted, and his son, weeping, walked slowly back to his place with the family. Now we're ready to go, Haim told the Khmer Rouge. It's a story that every time I read it, it challenges me to count the cost of being a disciple. To understand that persecution will come. We're to expect it. We're to embrace it. Because all the while, Jesus' beautiful kingdom is growing around us and through us and in us. So we're not to fear. Even when faced with pain or death or embarrassment or loss for Jesus' sake. Because Jesus promises us strength and wisdom in the midst of it. Do you know, we're not going to look in detail at the last section of our passage. It, it tells us the disciples, it, tell, it tells the disciples the sign to look out for that the temple would be surrounded and destroyed. And that, that did happen in 70 AD. Around about 65 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans invaded and destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. But Jesus was sharing this with them to let them know and see that though his kingdom would suffer horribly, it will not be destroyed like the temple was. And the question that hangs in, in the air is, which kingdom do you want to belong to? Which kingdom do you want to belong to? A kingdom that will be destroyed like the temple was. A kingdom of your own making. A kingdom where we serve and follow our own masters, our own success, our own comfort. A kingdom that will fall just like the Khmer Rouge dictatorship did. Just like every human power or authority has. Or will we plead with Jesus 
to belong to his kingdom. And we do that by talking to him. If you've not done that this morning, please come to the front after the first hymn, after the last hymn rather. Come to the front and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to belong to his kingdom. I want him to have lordship over my life. Because right now my life does not belong to him. And I know it won't last. So let's see the kingdom of God for what it is. Something that is beautiful, not crass. Let's not be deceived by false teachers that will try and take Christ's kingdom away from us. Let's expect persecution as well. Because Jesus' kingdom is advancing and growing and growing and growing. And more are being added to them, to its number daily. And let's seek Jesus' strength and comfort in the middle of it. Let's stand firm in these last days till Jesus returns.